Welcome to FYI, the four-year innovation podcast. This show offers an intellectual discussion on technologically enabled disruption, because investing in innovation starts with understanding it. To learn more, visit arc-invest.com. Arc Invest is a registered investment advisor focused on investing in disruptive innovation. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. It does not constitute either explicitly or implicitly any provision of services or products by Arc. All statements made regarding companies or securities are strictly beliefs and points of view held by Arc or podcast guests and are not endorsements or recommendations by Arc to buy, sell, or hold any security. Clients of Arc Investment Management may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of FYI. Today, you'll be hearing from Ali Ehrman, one of ARC's genome analysts, and then our very special guest, Dr. Scott Gottlieb. Ali, who is Dr. Scott Gottlieb? So Dr. Scott Gottlieb has served as the 23rd Commissioner of the U.S. Food and Drug Administration and is a resident fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. He also is a regular contributor to the business news channel, CNBC. He's a partner at the venture capital firm, New Enterprise Associates. He serves on the board of directors of the pharmaceutical company Pfizer and the genomic sequencing company Illumina. And he recently just had his first book published, which is called Uncontrolled Spread, Why COVID-19 Crushed Us and How We Can Defeat the Next Pandemic. Wow, quite the resume. And what are we going to be hearing about today in this podcast? So we talked about a lot of different things. We kind of bounced around, but we talked about the disagreement of the FDA and the CDC regarding booster eligibility. As we know, COVID-19 is is certainly on a lot of people's minds, and the idea of booster eligibility has become very prominent in discussions lately. We also talked about only having an interim FDA commissioner and his thoughts about that, given his previous experience there. The idea that the government is becoming increasingly involved in drug pricing control and what that could mean for genomic investing and regulation in the face of innovation. And of course, we touched a lot on the current pandemic. And also, we kind of, or Scott bucketed, three different buckets where we sort of see the biggest failures. The first was in testing. The second one was in creating domestic supply and not relying exclusively on a global supply chain. And the third one was the idea of treating pandemics as national security threats and relying less heavily on global information sharing, especially since, at least in this current pandemic, China was a little reticent on providing complete information about SARS-CoV-2. That's what you'll be hearing about. So hope you enjoy and thanks for doing the intro with me, Nick. Absolutely. So welcome to FYI for your innovation. Today we have a really exciting episode because Dr. Scott Gottlieb is joining us to discuss many things. One is the uncontrolled spread, Scott's new book, but also the pandemic, the past, the future, the present. So really excited to have you on. Hi, Scott. Hi, thanks for having me. Of course. So let's talk all the way back to the beginning of the pandemic feels like forever ago. So you had started your career in medicine at Mount Sinai. That was 20 years ago. So as scenes came out of Elmhurst Hospital in Queens, New York, during you know this devastating wave that hit the city in March of 2020, what was kind of like going through your head? Were you in touch with a lot of your friends or colleagues during just sort of the early, early days of the pandemic? Yeah, I was in touch with a lot of doctors who were working in New York, and I, and I don't think people 
fully appreciate even now how close the New York City healthcare system, the most vaunted healthcare system in the world, was to collapse. The New York City healthcare system was breached. It became a COVID-only healthcare system for an extended period of time. And watching those scenes out of Elmhurst was particularly hard to bear because I, I knew that hospital. I knew its capacity well. I knew doctors who still worked there. Seeing that hospital overrun was a pretty good indication of just how devastating this wave of infection was. I remember it was probably back in early January, someone said to me at a meeting, we were at a private meeting, a bunch of public health figures, and they said, New York City is going to look like Wuhan. And it shocked people in the room. But New York City ended up looking like Wuhan. I mean, it was devastated the city early on. Yeah. So I think that goes back to how did we do? So if you could give you know, the U.S. A, a letter grade, let's say, on how we did with our response, what would sort of your, your first thought be? Look, not well at all. I think there were aspects of the response where the American people were quite heroic. Certainly the healthcare system. I think the Americans who sacrificed great sacrifices to try to get through the pandemic, who set up homeschooling on the fly, who weathered the shutdown of small businesses, who agreed to wear masks and do things that we knew were going to reduce the spread, who took care of vulnerable populations, cities who that set up voting systems on the fly, mail-in voting systems to get to pull off a national election in the setting of a of a pandemic. But I think that the the infrastructure, that certainly the political response, there were a lot of shortcomings, a lot of political shortcomings. But what I really tried to focus on in the book was the more structural features of government where I think that there were systemic weaknesses in the structure of our response and in the agencies that were charged with responding to this that I don't think are fixed. I don't know that we're better prepared for a pandemic today than we were at the outset because we haven't done anything much to really shore up the institutions that we rely on to respond to this pandemic and we're going to respond need to rely on to respond to future pandemics. I think there's more of an awareness of the problems, probably not a lot of consensus around the diagnosis, but more of an awareness that there's some suffering going on and there's some structural features that are flawed. When we're going to come together to have a dialogue about how to reform these institutions, I'm not sure. I would have expected that to begin happening already. The hope was my book would be part of that dialogue. I thought we'd be in the thick of it. I thought Congress would be holding commissions and hearings and we'd be you know, drafting legislation and a framework for the future. And this book would hopefully come out in the setting of that, that discussion really hasn't started yet. And, you know, the only thing I can tell myself is maybe it's too early. Maybe, you know, we're still in the throes of the current pandemic and it's hard to plan for or think about how to prevent the next pandemic. Well, I think the book has certainly gotten a conversation going. I've definitely heard, you know, more about the response and how we could potentially think about better strategies for the future. And obviously in your book, you know, you write in depth about how our sort of national response really did fail and how maybe we can better prepare for future pandemic risks. And so you just gave some potential risks, you know, albeit political, et cetera. Can you kind of give us a quick summary on what you see as actually the biggest failure, though, and maybe sort of the top priorities for pandemic preparedness? I mean, we knew this was coming, right? It's It's been predicted in multiple sources. And so what could we, you know, have done better and, and how can we better be better prepared in the future? Yeah, I'd sort of break it into three big buckets. I think that we didn't have an agency or agencies that were able to mount the kind of logistical response that was needed to deal with the public health crisis of this magnitude. There was a perception that CDC was that agency and CDC had the ball and they really didn't. There were a lot of shortcomings in how that institution operates 
and a lot of cultural features of that institution that just left it ill-equipped to deal with a public health crisis this magnitude. It's a very slow-moving organization. It doesn't have a logistical capacity. It's not, it's not FEMA. It's not the DOD. They couldn't you know, develop a diagnostic test and deploy it at scale, and they couldn't create a mass distribution system for therapeutics and vaccines. They couldn't help scale the production of these things. They just couldn't organize that effort. And there was this perception among our political leaders that CDC had this, and they didn't. And, you know, to CDC's discredit, they didn't raise their hand and say, look, guys, we don't really have this. You're asking us to do things that institutionally we can't do. They couldn't even really collect information, accurate information, and do real-time analysis to inform policymaking and inform consumers. Early on, they couldn't collect the number of hospitalizations occurring because of COVID. The actual data they were putting out on COVID hospitalizations was a modeled estimate derived off of a very small sample set. They were basically sampling 1,000 of the nation's 6,000 hospitals, looking at how many COVID hospitalizations were occurring in those hospitals and developing a, a modeled estimate. So when they said there was 2,300 people hospitalized, that wasn't a point estimate. It was a modeled estimate. And the problem was the COVID epidemic was being experienced differently in different regions of the country. So they might have been oversampling or undersampling based on their approach. The entire northern half of California, they weren't collecting information on. They came out with a statement in Science Magazine at the time, this was in the spring, that we simply cannot collect data on a number of hospitalizations occurring in the United States. That's not possible. Well, it was possible. And it was ultimately, this task was ultimately taken away from the CDC and HHS created a new entity to do it. And it was possible. It was actually possible to count the number of hospitalizations occurring. The second big bucket was we lacked the sort of resiliency in our manufacturing base to scale the production of the countermeasures that we needed. Vaccines certainly is the obvious one, but even therapeutics like monoclonal antibodies, even low commodity items like the swabs used to collect nasal samples for diagnostic testing, we ran out of them. We relied on foreign supply chains for a lot of these low commodity components and complex healthcare systems without recognizing that in the setting of a global pandemic, everyone would be tugging on the same supply chain at the same time. And all of a sudden, things that you thought there were a lot of, there wouldn't be a lot of, because every nation would be hoarding them and every nation would be requiring excess supplies. And it's always, one thing I learned at FDA, it's always the lowest margin component in a complex supply chain in healthcare that goes into shortage. Because by virtue of the fact that it's a low margin component, chances are production has been moved overseas. Chances are production has been consolidated in the hands of a small number of manufacturers because the only way to do it profitably is to do it at scale. And chances are manufacturing has been underinvested in because it's a low margin component. So what did we run out of? The nasal swabs, the plastic pipette tips used to transfer samples onto the PCR machines to do the diagnostic testing, the reagents, the liquid reagents used in the diagnostic testing. Those are the kinds of things that we ran out of. The third bucket is national security in nature. And it's looking at public health preparedness through an through the lens of national security, not just in terms of the domestic preparations we make, but also the foreign engagement. And what I mean by that is historically, we've relied on the WHO and the CDC to work through the WHO to create multilateral commitments among nations to agree to share information about emerging pathogens. And time and again, we have seen in the setting of outbreaks of novel disease, countries aren't forthcoming. It isn't just the Chinese government that's done this time and time again. It's other nations as well, even nations that we have closer collaboration with. But the Chinese clearly weren't forthcoming in a setting of SARS-1. In a setting of SARS-CoV-2, they still haven't shared things like the source strains. There was information that could have been available in mid-December that, that wasn't made available. They were slow to acknowledge that there was human-to-human transmission. That was a critical piece of data. They were slow to acknowledge that there was asymptomatic transmission of this virus. If we had known those things in mid-December, it might have changed how we scaled our response. And certainly in the hands of 
effective political leadership that was attuned to these risks, it would have changed how we responded. And so what we're going to need to do in the future is get our foreign intelligence services much more engaged in this overseas mission. Historically, the public health community hasn't wanted foreign intelligence services anywhere near this because they perceive that as eroding their bilateral relationships and multilateral relationships. They worry that everyone with a white coat is going to be perceived to be a spy. But I don't think we can afford the luxury of believing that you know doctors working together around the world and going to the World Health Assembly and holding hands and say we really mean it this time is going to be able to protect us and give us the information we need in the setting of the next outbreak that could become a global pandemic. And final point, if anything, on this point, if anything, COVID has conditioned the world to be even less forthcoming because what COVID showed is that we've now normalized the idea of trade and travel restrictions as a way to isolate nations that are host to outbreaks. And so what COVID has said to the world is if you have an outbreak and you tell everyone, the first thing that's going to happen is everyone's going to shut off their travel to you. Before COVID, it was sort of taboo to isolate a nation. If you remember, there was a lot of pressure on President Obama to cut off travel to West Africa during the Ebola outbreak. And a lot of public health officials, including myself, said, no, we can't do that. If we do that, it's going to destabilize the West African nations when they need our help the most, and it's actually going to exacerbate the outbreak. But now, after COVID, it's going to be normalized. What's the first thing that happened when the British announced that they have this concerning new variant, B117, that appears to be more contagious? The French closed the channel. They started to isolate Britain. So you saw those long lines of trucks lined up that couldn't get into Britain to make deliveries. And so I think we're going to have to lean much more heavily on our tools of national security overseas to protect us and to identify information that's going to warn us of the next outbreak. I think that idea of the three buckets is really helpful as a way of just sort of visualizing the main issues. So maybe to break that down into three questions, one on each bucket. So the first one, testing. So you mentioned testing as as one of our major shortcomings in the book and, and both right now. So After the early stages of the pandemic, CRISPR-based COVID-19 tests were created. Do you think that if those had been tested earlier in the pandemic, do you think that could have helped at all with the impact or sort of contained the spread in any way? Well, I think certainly if we had been able to scale testing much earlier, it could have had a very big impact on the contours of this pandemic. We wouldn't have been able to prevent a, a U.S. epidemic, but we could have slowed the spread, slowed the introduction, probably reduced the peak of the epidemic and preserve more political capital and make hard decisions later on in the epidemic. As it were, we relied on the CDC to develop and deploy a diagnostic test. CDC was never going to be able to do that. This was a failure of political leadership to understand that CDC wasn't going to be able to do this. What we needed to do at some point in January, someone needed to say, this virus looks really concerning. Certainly by the end of January, when the Chinese government shut down the Ube province, did a historic quarantine of the Ube province, that should have been a pretty strong wake-up call that this was concerning and that we were unlikely to escape spread here in the United States. And so what needed to happen is someone needed to pick up the phone and call the major diagnostic manufacturers in this country and say, hey guys, we need you to get into this game. We need you to get into the market and start producing at scale diagnostic tests. You know, we'll get funding for it. We'll buy them. We'll guarantee purchase. But we need you to start working at it because it takes six weeks to ramp that up. You can't just convert a line and start developing diagnostic test kits that can sit on the platforms of diagnostic testing machines across the nation. That phone call was never made. That phone call wasn't made really until the end of February. And we really didn't start scaling the production of diagnostic tests until March. If we had a diagnostic test, what difference would it have made? Well, first of all, if we had deployed it early around the country, what we could have done is start testing people who were showing up with flu-like symptoms but testing negative for flu. We could have started testing for coronavirus. And what we would have discovered was there was a lot of community spread. 
We didn't really discover the community spread, or we didn't acknowledge the community spread until March. The famous press conference with Nancy Messenier, the CDC official, where the markets fell, you know, I think six, seven hundred points, where she said community spread is inevitable. This was the end of March. I think it was uh, end of February. I think it was February twenty fourth. She said community spread is going to happen. That spooked the markets. But in the beginning of that press conference, what she said was, "But there isn't community spread at this time." To this date, our containment efforts are succeeding. That's almost verbatim what she said. So we were unaware that there was community spread going on. And so it allowed the nation to get very heavily seated. That could have been discovered earlier. Without a diagnostic test, we also couldn't understand what the geographic and social compartments of spread were and how the virus was spreading. So CDC was seeing all these situations where there was outbreaks, but there was no sick contact. Nobody had, they couldn't trace it back to a sick person. They would see like, 10 people get sick at a conference, but they couldn't find anyone who went into the conference not feeling well. And so they said, aha, it must be spreading through contaminated surfaces. Someone must have contaminated a surface, you know, a utensil, everyone touched it, and that's how this spread. And so they overemphasized the cleaning of surfaces. We were all wiping down our groceries for months, but they didn't recognize the asymptomatic transmission. What was happening was there was someone going into that setting who was asymptomatic and became a super spreader, but without a diagnostic test, without the ability to test people, we couldn't identify that. And so it forced us to misunderstand exactly how the virus was spreading. And then the third place where the lack of a diagnostic test really set us back was early on when we did the 15 days to slow the spread, and then subsequent to that, the 30 days to slow the spread. So a historic 45-day shutdown of non-essential activity or, or you know, sort of urging of the federal government to shut down non-essential activity, which, which most states followed. We had to do that in New York. New York was on the brink of collapse. We had to do that in New Orleans, Chicago, Boston, Philadelphia. There were cities that clearly were overwhelmed with virus and short of implementing population-wide mitigation would have been brought to collapse of their healthcare system. Did we need to do it in Bozeman, Montana? Did we need to do it in Jacksonville, Florida? Did we need to do it at that point in Dallas, Texas? Probably not. But the problem is not only did we not know where the virus was, we didn't know where it wasn't. And we couldn't target the mitigation to the places where the spread was occurring and not implement it in the places where you could still use testing, tracing, tracking as a way to control spread, and you didn't have to tell everyone to stay in their homes. And so what happened was, by the time the virus did spread to the South, did spread to Bozeman, Montana, and people were saying, you gotta shut down Houston, people in Houston said, no, no, we already shut down. You told us to shut down in the spring. We probably didn't have to. We're not doing this again. So you, you basically spent that card too early in the game. And if you go back and look at the 2005 pandemic plan, which I was a part of, and I talk a lot about this in the book, they talked about in that plan for the first time using mitigation, closing schools, closing businesses as a way to control spread. Nowhere in that plan did we ever contemplate a simultaneous national shutdown. The idea was we were prepping for a pandemic flu. So let's put that on the table. So we believed we'd always have ample diagnostic testing because we know how to test for flu. There's an installed base of flu testing. But the idea was that you'd use the mitigation on a targeted basis in places where the spread was occurring and where it was breaching the healthcare system, but you wouldn't do it nationally. But without a diagnostic test, we were blind. We were blind to the spread. We didn't know where the spread was and we didn't know where it wasn't. So a simple, inexpensive tool, the inability to scale that early in this outbreak. And a lot of this was a fault of political leaders for not getting private industry in the game early. And a lot of it was a fault of the CDC for bungling the rollout of the test and not really acknowledging what their limitations were allowing this fiction to persist that they were somehow going to be able to fill the testing void. Last point on this, the testing void 
was finally filled in this country. So if you remember in March, the vice president came out and said, we have millions of tests. What we had was millions of kits capable of running tests. We didn't have millions of platforms capable of running those kits. But those millions of kits became available when a single company that was making diagnostic test kits, primer and probe kits for, quote, research use only. They were basically making these coronavirus test kits that they were giving the labs to do research on coronavirus. FDA looked at it and they said, wow, this is a high quality test kit. We could convert this for patient use. And they actually, I talk about this in the book, they went to CDC and pressured CDC to put this primer and probe kit under the existing emergency use authorization so it could be distributed to healthcare settings and be used on patients. That's when the testing void started to be filled. So if we move on to the second bucket, so, you know, one lesson that you you obviously talk about in preparedness is creating a domestic supply and obviously not relying exclusively on the global supply chain. So will building our own domestic supply, though, impact, you know, global communication and relations? The idea of creating this domestic supply chain and not relying exclusively on the global supply chain, will that impact at all global communication and relations, do you think? I don't think so, because what we're going to do, hopefully, at some point when we get into pandemic planning in more earnest, is look at the places where there's vulnerabilities because we rely too much on foreign supply chains that might not be available to us in a setting of a crisis. And I think we're going to do more to provide for the domestic capacity. This isn't going to like tip the balance of trade around the world. These are going to be discrete areas where we're going to try to build more domestic capacity. And I think that there's going to be not just a national security imperative to do this. I think that there is also like a public health imperative and even an economic imperative on why you would want to redomesticate production of certain components. Look, we do this in the realm of national defense. We don't build facilities to service the Trident nuclear submarine in other countries. We do it here domestically because we worry that in the setting of a global crisis, foreign manufacturing sites may not be open to us. So there's certain things that we retain domestically as a matter of national security. We're going to have to do the same thing here. We're going to have to have the ability to scale the production of antibody-based drugs and vaccines here domestically. And it's not that we've so much as outsourced that, it's that we haven't provided for a residual capacity that could be used in a crisis. We operate for maximal efficiency in this country in a lot of realms. We need to start finding places where we need to operate for some level of resiliency. Diagnostic testing is a good point. If you go to a high complexity lab run by LabCorp Quest, they might have 3,000 machines, high complexity machines, PCR machines, and machines for testing serum blood samples for antibodies. They might have about 3,000 of those machines running about 80% capacity. That's maximal efficiency. They're not running at 100% capacity. There's always downtime on these machines. But you're running your machines pretty much all the time. If you want to operate it for maximal resiliency, if you want to build some excess capacity into the system, you might operate 5,000 machines at 50% capacity or 60% capacity. So now you've had, you have some reserve capacity built into the system. You're not operating for maximal efficiency. So you're losing money but you've got some more surge capacity in the event of a crisis. And the government could come in and subsidize that. They could say, we're going to pay you money on an annual basis to maintain some reserve capacity, operate your facility, so it's a hot base of preparedness. It's not like you're building things and mothballing it, because that doesn't work. We tried that, and it doesn't work. If you're not operating a facility, you're not keeping it up to date, you're not employing the staff, the high-skilled personnel that are needed to operate it, 
in the event of an emergency, but you're subsidizing some residual capacity to basically get a call option on that capacity in the event of a crisis. Same thing with biologics. You might go to a skilled biologics manufacturing company, you, know, you put this out to bid so everyone gets a chance at it, but you might go to a company like Regeneron and say, you guys are really good at manufacturing biologics. You, know, you operate your existing facility at 90% capacity. We want you to overbuild your next facility and build some excess capacity. And so maybe one of your bioreactors is offline at any one time undergoing maintenance. We'll pay you to do that, but we want a call option where on six weeks notice or two months notice, we can take over your facility and be able to operate it for 16 months, whatever the time frame is. And the company would fulfill that by both overbuilding their facility and maybe freezing more of their frozen supply of their drug. Companies right now freeze a certain amount of their biologics as a hedge against something going wrong with their manufacturing processes. So they might just freeze more of their drug and that's costly to do. You have to eventually throw out your frozen supply. Again, the government could come in and subsidize that as a matter of national security to, in order to have some strategic capacity to scale the production of things that we know we're gonna need in a crisis. The old planning, again, that came out of 2005, was mostly around flu. And the idea was, let's just build a bunch of sophisticated facilities and not operate them. That's the emergent facility. That's the facility on the campus of Texas A&M. And that didn't work because what we found was that if you weren't constantly operating the facilities, you couldn't just keep them warm because it's too costly and you can't keep them up to date. You can't keep the facility up to date. You're not investing the right resources to do it. But more importantly, you can't keep the trained personnel there. It's very expensive. People who are engaged in these manufacturing processes, especially around biologics, are highly trained personnel. And you can't just mothball a facility and expect to be able to bring in the labor in a time of crisis. It's got to be operating. Yeah. And then if we think about the sort of the third bucket, so to close up the, the bucket analogy, because I really like it, you say in the book also that we must, you know, treat pandemics as a national security threat. And so because of that, we need to rely less heavily on global information sharing, especially as, as you mentioned earlier, since China was, you know, a little bit reticent to provide complete information about SARS-CoV-2 and previous pandemics as well. So, how can our intelligence service sort of track disease more globally? And how can we go about this without really harming our sort of multilateral agreements that we already have in place? Yeah, I think we're just going to need to be a little bit more deliberate about it and, you know, kind of acknowledge this going on. I, I think that right now when a lot of Americans travel abroad, they're presumed to be spies anyway. So it's not like it's not like our, our officials are going overseas and foreign intelligence services aren't monitoring them and suspecting that they could be engaging in information gathering. But there was information to be had, certainly by mid-December. We know that doctors were aware of an outbreak of a novel viral pneumonia. We know that there were, se there were samples being sent off and getting sequenced, dozens of samples being sent off and getting sequenced, where doctors were getting back the results that it was a novel coronavirus, that they became aware that it was a SARS-like coronavirus somewhere in that mid-December timeframe. We know that there were healthcare personnel getting infected with it, which is a real strong indication that is passing human to human. When you see healthcare personnel getting infected, they're most likely getting it from their patients. That information was obtainable, certainly by mid-December and maybe even earlier. And that could have given us a two, three week head start on really understanding the scope of this virus. Really, we didn't nail down those key features, that there was human to human transmission, that there was asymptomatic spread, that this was a SARS-like coronavirus until early to mid-January. I mean, that information kind of accrued over the course of you know, early to mid-January. If we could have nailed down those parameters in mid-December, it could have potentially been a month-long head start. And again, in the hands of a response poised to take these threats seriously, 
it could have given us advance notice to try to scale the production of a diagnostic test. I mean, imagine that if we had started to scale the production of a diagnostic test, certainly by the end of December or mid-December, we could have had a diagnostic test in place by the end of January, mass deployed across the country. And that could have made a tremendous difference in our ability to get the handle on some of the early spread. Yeah, it certainly would have looked quite different than it does today. It's still sort of in the pandemic phase right now. Focusing on some of the positives, in times of crisis, oftentimes innovation flourishes because we have no other choice. So do you have any examples of things that you really thought were innovative approaches that maybe will be used as a model going forward or as an idea going forward? I know you mentioned maybe having some companies freeze some of their drug products and and having the government subsidize that, which would be an interesting model going forward. We obviously saw the 3D printed ventilators and others. So just wondering if you you thought there were some sort of innovative approaches that, that maybe could be used forward. Well, I think the biggest technological inflection point that we crossed in the saying this pandemic was the ability to derive drugs and, and vaccines fully synthetically, you know, come up with a drug and vaccine construct using just the information about the sequence of a virus and not have to actually grow the virus, not even have to handle the virus, but certainly not have to grow it. The old the vaccines was the most evident sort of application of this paradigm where you were able to develop a vaccine construct fully off of the sequence information. The old paradigm would have had us taking the SARS-CoV-2 virus, finding a cell culture that it could grow in efficiently, which would have taken time, and growing it in large quantities, inactivating it, cleaving off its surface proteins, and putting those proteins in a syringe. And that would have been the vaccine stock. And that's what the Chinese, in fact, did to come up with their vaccines. And their vaccines don't work quite as well, according to the clinical data. We were able to derive vaccine constructs fully synthetically. That allowed us to pivot to a candidate vaccine exceedingly quickly. And the same thing applied on the drug side. We were able to start developing the antibody-based drugs using sequence information early on. If this was three, four years ago, we wouldn't have been able to apply these tools. If this was three, four years from now, these tools would have been mainstreamed. So I think that that was the most sort of stark technological inflection point that we crossed in the setting of the pandemic. The other big technological inflection point was the application of sequencing data and sequencing information more generally to the traditional field of epidemiology and the growth of this field of gen epi. Trevor Bedford, one of the pioneers in this, just became a Howard Hughes fellow. I think it's a recognition in the scientific community of how important this field is. We had applied sequencing in the setting of the outbreak of Ebola in West Africa for the first time to look at how different strains were spreading in the community as a way to try to get information on the epidemic. But we used it on a very small scale. This was the first time that sequencing data was used at a global scale to trace the patterns of spread around the world and understand the social and geographic compartments in which spread was occurring. Was spread going from rural communities to cities or from cities to rural communities? Well, that's hard to tell from epidemiological data alone. But if you have sequencing data and you're sequencing the strains so you can actually follow the migration of individual strains of the virus, you can start to get a much more accurate picture of how spread is occurring. That's a real innovation. I don't think we're going to go back to doing epidemiology the old way again. I think it's always going to be powered by sequencing data. And as the cost of sequencing strains comes down, I think it's going to be even more profound. The cost of sequencing a virus is about one-tenth the cost of sequencing a human genome. And, you know, assuming that we get to a $100 human genome, it'll cost about $10 to sequence a virus, maybe less. 
So you talk about vaccines, which obviously was one of the most innovative things to come out of the pandemic and very controversial as of late around boosters. So, you know, disagreements between the FDA and the CDC, between who should get a booster, who's eligible. Obviously, you used to be in that seat heading up the FDA. And so how would you have gone about the approval process to avoid sort of this confusion and maybe cause of a a bit of vaccine hesitancy for getting the boosters? Yeah, look, we used a process for adjudicating the vaccine rollout, not just the initial rollout, but, but the rollout of the boosters that was designed largely to make decisions about the childhood immunization schedule. I mean, ACIP, which is the advisory committee of CDC that rendered a judgment here based on the FDA authorization, is an advisory committee that's composed of a lot of pediatricians and not their only job, but I would say their primary job is making decisions about what vaccines go in the childhood immunization schedule. And the process is designed to be highly deliberative, somewhat slow, and to almost create conflict between FDA and CDC. And the reason it's designed that way is because these are such weighty decisions. Making a decision about what goes in the childhood immunization schedule is going to sort of compel the vaccination of almost every child in the country. You want that to be highly deliberative. You want there to be a lot of different people looking at that decision through the lens of a lot of different considerations. And that's the way the process is designed. But in the setting of a global pandemic, when you're making decisions about the deployment of an adult vaccine, where adults have discretion on whether or not they take it, where you want to move quickly and you want to inspire public confidence, a process designed to be slow, deliberative, and create conflict might not be the best process for making a decision about a vaccine in the setting of public health emergency. So I think we just applied the wrong process. And there's nothing in law or regulation that says it has to work this way. We could have said, you know what, we're going to get FDA and CC aligned and we're going to create a new process where they work together and there's a seamless advisory committee and they make a joint decision. We could have done that, but we didn't. We sort of superimposed this decision making on the existing process without recognizing that the features that are virtuous in a peacetime setting actually could be counterproductive in a wartime setting of a global pandemic. And remember, FDA and CDC are rendering an opinion, a judgment on the exact same question using different criteria. So there's no better way to describe a process that's intended to create some level of conflict than a process where you have similarly situated public health officials in two different agencies rendering a decision on the same question based on a different set of criteria. Inevitably, they're both going to come out with different conclusions. And in fact, if you look historically at the pediatric immunization schedule and and the advice that comes out of FDA and CDC, the agencies don't agree. FDA often makes broad authorizations and CDC often narrows it. And sometimes it's been to the chagrin of FDA. I mean, I remember being at the FDA at times where people would say, I can't believe CDC did this. You know, this vaccine should be offered more broadly. And CDC decided to offer it to a more narrow population. The process was designed to be that way. We thought that there was benefit in it. I think that the process works very well for its intended and its intended use, which is largely to make decisions about childhood immunization, although they obviously make more decisions about adult vaccines too, Shingrix, things like that, the Numavax. But a lot of the work they do concerns pediatric vaccines, since that's where we use a lot of vaccines. So speaking of the FDA, currently we only have an interim FDA commissioner. As you know, as your as your previous role, how important it is to have sort of a leader at the helm. I'm curious sort of your thoughts on, is that having sort of a negative impact on the speed or ease of FDA meetings and therapeutic approvals? 
do you think that it's needed sort of a, a permanent FDA commissioner? Yeah, I don't think that's having an impact. You know, I think that if there was a sort of Senate confirmed commissioner and that was someone who was brought in from the outside, who didn't have a lot of experience with the agency, there's a very steep learning curve in that job. And I'm not sure that in the setting of an ongoing crisis, bringing someone in from the outside who's going to have a six to eight month learning curve is going to supply the agency with a greater degree of sort of operational capacity than having a very experienced hand, someone who knows the agency well, knows how to operate, like Dr. Janet Woodcock. So I think, you know, in the setting of the situation we're facing, having Dr. Woodcock in that position is actually advantageous. Now, I'd like to see her nominated and confirmed into the role. There's political reasons why that may be difficult, but I think she's been highly effective in that job. And I'm not sure that having, if you had sort of brought someone else in from the outset, that that would have been preferable. There's a, having gone into that agency, in and out of that agency three times and been in different roles, I can tell you that's a very hard agency to get a handle on because the regulation and the law governing the decision-making is so complex and the agency's mission is so diverse. It's touching so many different areas of commercial activity that there's a lot to learn. I mean, food regulation, veterinary medicine regulation, tobacco regulation, medical devices, radiological devices, drugs, biologics, vaccines, blood products, dietary supplements. It's so broad that you come in there into that job and it could be overwhelming. When I came in, you know, I had the benefit of having worked there for many years and worked for four different commissioners. So I had that experience, but um, that could be a hard place to really get up to speed around. That makes total sense. And and when you're thinking about sort of governmental impact and, you know, the government becoming sort of increasingly more involved in drug pricing and even potentially price control in the R&D department, do you think that's going to have any impact on, you know, R&D or investment opportunities in the genomic space at all? I think it will have an impact on investment decisions around on the venture capital side and some of the early investment. I think it could. I think if you see price controls put in place that put cap expected returns, people are going to have to rethink their models. And there may be investment decisions that don't get made because you're not going to be able to have a high enough potential return to get over your hurdle rate on the investment decision, given the very high cost of capital in this space. I mean, the cost of capital is high because of the time cost of capital. The cost of capital is high because of the direct investments. The cost of capital is high because you have to risk adjust the investments you're making. And this is a very risky, these are risky endeavors. And so given the cost of capital, that the cost of capital is so high, you need, in some cases, a high expected return to make the models work. And if you can't get that high expected rate of return, or you can't model that, the capital is going to move into other endeavors. And is, you know, are the major pharmaceutical companies going to stop investing in drugs? No. I mean, I'm on the board of Pfizer, as you know, other big companies, they're in this game. They're not going to start suddenly making shampoo. They're in the pharmaceutical business. That's where they are. They might have less money to invest in R&D. They might have to change the way they take risks, but they're going to continue to make investments. I think where you're going to see the capital potentially leave the market is where the capital markets are more fluid and people can sort of move allocations around. And that's on the venture capital side. If you're a big diversified venture capital fund, you know you can make a decision to over allocate to one pocket over another. And if something looks more attractive, you might, you might very well do that. And so I think that, that that's where you could see policy impacting investment. And that's where a lot of the innovation is coming out of. That's where the extreme risk taking is being taken. And so that would be you know deeply unfortunate because the Small biotech startups have become an engine of innovation for the entire industry, including feeding the pipelines of the big drug companies. 
Yeah. So sort of along those same lines, then how do you think we should balance sort of regulation and policy in the face of this sort of accelerating innovation that we're seeing? I think we, for the most part, strike a careful balance between an appropriate level of regulation in order to assure safety and effectiveness and assure consumers that they're going to have adequate information to inform decisions and payers and other purchasers in the market and not overburdening companies with processes and and regulation that doesn't provide a lot of bang for your buck. Do we get the balance right? No. I mean, you know, this is a constant struggle. There's people on both sides of this debate, people who are saying, you know, the FDA is too lax and people are saying the FDA is too strict and there's all these promising drugs that aren't becoming available to patients who face life-threatening disorders. You know, I was in the middle of these debates and regardless of what you do, there's people on both sides who feel you either did too much or too little and there's winners and losers on every decision. And that's what makes these debates so hard. It's what makes these jobs so hard. And what's at stake are pretty significant decisions, decisions about investing in public health tools and decisions about making products available to patients that could either harm or help them. And you want to make sure they help them and don't harm them. And so, you know, it's a difficult balance to strike. Since we're talking about sort of the accelerated innovation, hard to not talk about, obviously, your board member advisor. We just sort of talked about that. As we know, their innovation in terms of the COVID-19 vaccine has been pretty remarkable. So you obviously had a front row seat to that, to the production and the rollout. What was it like to be sort of at the forefront of, of that sort of amazing time in science? Yeah, and I talk about it in the book, the decisions that had to be made around the vaccine. There was one episode I talk about where we voted, the board voted to make a significant investment decision. I think it was $500 million, so half a billion dollars to invest in manufacturing facilities, sort of bespoke manufacturing equipment that was really only going to be applicable to manufacturing an mRNA vaccine before we knew an mRNA vaccine was going to work. If this vaccine ended up not working and the whole concept of using mRNA technology for vaccines ended up being invalidated by what we learned in the setting of the COVID vaccine. I don't know if it would have all been written off. I can't break that down, but it would have, uh, some component of it wouldn't have been able to be applied to anything else. And so that's an extreme amount of risk to take. Now, obviously, Pfizer had the capacity to do that. The board was fully committed. This was Albert's vision. Albert was fully committed to trying to work, the CEO of, of Pfizer, work as quickly as possible to get this done. And he deliberately declined government money to subsidize this because there was government money available to pay for these investments because he felt it would slow down the ability to get it done, that, that you'd have a long negotiation process and there would be a lot of extra paperwork and scrutiny that would ultimately slow down his scientists. And he didn't want them to be encumbered because he knew time was life saved and wanted to be able to move as quickly as possible. So they weren't decisions that we like struggled with. It was, you know, it was sort of obvious that we were going to do these things. But I think you realize sort of the gravity of of the decisions and and how important it was and how much risk we were taking to try to develop a vaccine, the company, the board, everyone, shareholders. And now as we move sort of hopefully towards the endemic phase, you know, I thought it was really interesting that Pfizer disclosed on their earnings call that it has an mRNA strategy. So not only are they going to use that, you know, during the pandemic, it's so important, but they're also talking about sort of in the endemic phase, what's going to be super important and how can they use all that build up infrastructure that you spoke about to continue to get good gains and, and good sort of scientific validity and also, you know, hopefully use this in other therapies as well. And so, 
you know, they talked about using it for the mRNA, the LMP, and also potentially for gene editing with base editing, which I thought was was really, really interesting. So I don't know how involved you are in that process or anything like that, but just curious on sort of your thoughts on how we're going to use the infrastructure that was created to make possible these mRNA vaccines in more of the endemic phases. Yeah, look, I think that what we learned in the setting of COVID is that the mRNA platform is a very effective technological platform for developing vaccines and particularly developing vaccines that could be highly effective across the age continuum. Typically, what you see with vaccines is they work better in younger people than in older people. And what, what's been remarkable about these mRNA vaccines, when you look at the data, it's not just Pfizer's vaccine, it's Moderna's vaccine, it's the, the mRNA as a platform, is that you see equivalent efficacy in older and younger people. And that's not typically what you see. And so what that suggests is that this may be a very attractive platform for developing adult vaccines, particularly in older individuals where we've sometimes struggled to come up with vaccine constructs that provide robust immunity in an older individual. Suddenly, this looks like a tool that could elicit a robust immune response in people who've been somewhat impervious or or less likely to mount a robust immune response to old kinds of vaccine constructs. So I think that the idea of using mRNA vaccines to try to tackle a broad range of of diseases now becomes really attractive. And not just things that we haven't been able to vaccinate against, but things that we vaccinate against, but we don't have really super efficacious vaccines. I mean, even something like influenza, you know, the vaccine sometimes is 40, 50%, in good years, 50% effective, and in bad years, 25% effective. With an mRNA construct, there's at least the theoretical belief that you can come up with a vaccine that could be more effective than that. In fact, the reason why Pfizer was able to pivot quickly into developing a coronavirus vaccine is because they had a program where they were using this mRNA technology to try to develop a a flu vaccine. And they pivoted that program into the COVID effort. And then I think it'd be good also just to think about, so Illumina, also you are on the board of Illumina as well. And one of the things that we talked about as being really important for vaccine and and also just to understand the pandemic and, and the virus was sequencing. When we think about sequencing and and short and long read sequencing, I'm just curious if you have any thoughts on, you know, did this change anything for the company or sequencing in general? And, you know, do you think this is going to have a greater impact, you know, in the next five to 10 years? I mean, it gets back to the whole idea of genetic epidemiology and using sequencing as a tool to augment traditional tools of epidemiology. I think that it validated at a large scale, the use of sequencing as a way to track the spread of infectious diseases. And there's going to be other applications of that. Certainly in the setting of things like flu and coronavirus, I think we're going to be sequencing at scale to try to inform our epidemiological assumptions much differently in the future. But there will be other applications as well in the field of infectious disease and using sequencing to augment those traditional approaches. So yeah, it, it created a new paradigm. You know, I think that the genomic tools were the evolutionary element in a lot of what what we did on the technology side, the ability to use sequencing to augment epidemiology, the ability to use genomic information to derive synthetic drug and vaccine constructs, the ability to use low-cost tools, molecular diagnostic tools to get point-of-care diagnostics more widely available, including in the home, things like the Lumera test, which is a highly accurate molecular test available direct to consumer. I think a whole new paradigm has been created by the use of gene sequence information in the setting of viral pathogens. Now, just to bring it all the way back to the beginning with the last question, is that 
it's kind of just this thought about social media. So social media obviously is getting bigger and bigger. It wasn't as big in, in any sort of pandemic that we've seen before. How do you think sort of we dealt with social media from from a political perspective, from a societal perspective? Was there anything good, bad, anything to take forward in terms of how we should conduct ourselves in future pandemics? Well, look, I think in the setting of, of this pandemic, it was a tool that was used for both good and bad. Good, there were a lot of good, but the one that you know was striking to me was how much information was shared early on by doctors and researchers and public health officials using med Twitter and social media, information about what therapeutics might be working. At a time, we were sort of the fog of viral war when we didn't have effective data collection. Social media became a place where experts exchanged information very effectively and you know, it was on social media where the first sequence of information was posted. But it also became a way, social media has become a way for people to form communities that reflect their current views. You could live within an information community on social media where everything you get reinforces your, your existing beliefs. That's how we get all the vaccine skepticism and all the COVID deniers because they're sort of getting information from communities that becomes very self-reinforcing. And in the old world, you know, you had major media companies where there was editorial content that had to be evaluated for its veracity and provided a level of diversity. Now, you know, people would say, oh, the mainstream media is biased, but the mainstream media has, you know, standards, editorial standards where information has to go undergo at least some measure of evaluation for accuracy, but on social media, there's no standard and there's no editorial supervision. So you could live within a community on social media, on Facebook, where you're getting things that are objectively untrue, that are just reinforcing preconceived notions that are flawed or inaccurate. Right. That's certainly the challenge. Well, we want to thank you for your time today for the podcast and all the great insights and the wonderful read. We look forward to having you on again soon. Thanks a lot. Thanks for having me. ARC believes that the information presented is accurate and was obtained from sources that ARC believes to be reliable. However, ARC does not guarantee the accuracy or completeness of any information, and such information may be subject to change without notice from ARC. Historical results are not indications of future results. Certain of the statements contained in this podcast may be statements of future expectations and other forward-looking statements that are based on ARC's current views and assumptions, and involve known and unknown risks and uncertainties that could cause actual results, performance, or events to differ materially from those expressed or implied in such statements.